0: Welcome to Conversations and Grief, a podcast from Anamkara, an organization set up by bereaved parents to help themselves and all bereaved parents cope with their grief and loss and journey on. I'm Sam whelan curtin and in this podcast series, we'll be hearing from parents as they share their own unique stories of their children and their journey through grief. In this episode, we will be talking about the journey through treatment and eventual loss with Jarlett as he speaks to us about losing his son, Keen. Thank you for joining us, Jarlett. Can you introduce yourself for us and tell us about your family?
1: My name is Jarlett Corrigan. Uh, my wife is Rachel, four children, Shane, Keen, Saoirse and Kiva. Keen died in 2009, May 2009, of a spinal cord tumour, a geoblastoma. Uh, he was diagnosed in 2008, November 2008, and was given two weeks to live and lived to May the following
0: year. And can you tell me a little bit more about Kean? Kean
1: I suppose he just a typical little boy, full of life, full of enthusiasm, uh, full of crack. He was a really happy happy child, mad into Gaelic football. His passion was Gaelic football and animals. He loved to know how the world worked and things like that got there, but he was just, he had an addiction nearly with, with Gaelic football. He was a normal little boy just doing his own thing. He was just, uh, before he was diagnosed, he was just just over 10 years of age.
0: And he had such a journey through that experience from diagnosis to treatment to his eventual passing. Can you tell me about that experience?
1: The, the run up to his passing was, uh, King just woke up one Monday morning and uh, I went to work and he came downstairs and he said to his mother, just me arm feels funny. He had a weakness in his arm, and she said, "Keen, you're not getting off school today, you're going to school, thinking that he was pulling the fly one. So that was grand. he went to school and he came home that evening from school and said to his mother, you're gonna have to take me to the doctor. Uh, This arm still isn't right. And she said, what do you mean? He said, we were playing football today and I couldn't catch the ball. She says, what do you mean you couldn't? I couldn't raise my arm, so she said, raise your hand as high as you, he couldn't even lift it above his waist so we knew there was something uh, wrong straight away and took him to the doctors, Doctor sent us straight down to Craig Gavin. doing a number of tests uh, couldn't find anything so that was the Monday they wanted him back on the Friday to do an MRI and Keane was sitting his 11 plus on the on the Friday and Saturday. And they said, look, don't worry about it. She sure, will take him in next Monday. So Keen set his 11 plus to put him into the sling that day, Saturday his 11 plus, went in on the Monday, done a number of scans, MRIs and whatever, and done bloods and all that there. And f- from there on, I suppose the nightmare started. He was rushed straight down to the Royal. They could see a growth in his spinal cord. Now at, at that stage, didn't make any sense to me you know, I knew nothing about tumors or anything like that or the right way they walked. Uh, down to the rail anyhow. And they kept him in. Then they said, look, he needs an operation. His, the long and the short of it was that his spinal cord was full of the tumor. And that's why he'd lost the power to his arm. Then they'd set a date, which was the following week uh, for to do the operation. We came in, they let him at home for a few days. They took him in on the Sunday night. His operation was to be at eight o'clock on Monday morning. And three o'clock in the morning, Keane got up and went to the toilet himself, came back in at seven o'clock. Nurses came in, said, we're going to prep him, get him ready. Eight o'clock came, nine o'clock came. We were sort of worried at that stage. So we made inquiries and said, look, his intensive care bed has been taken up during the night. It was a road traffic accident and his operation was now canceled. And we said, look, will it make any difference? And they said, no. That, eh, uh, they just, we, we said, like, if you need uh, nurses to come in from elsewhere, that we would pay for it. And doctors said, no, we just don't have them. So to set it again for a fortnight later, came in on the Sunday night again, everything was grand. Keen went to the toilet during the night himself, everything was grand. And then at seven o'clock that morning, he said, it feel funny. And he said, it can feel like a, Pins and needles going through my body. And what actually happened then, his tumour had ruptured mm-hmm. and Keen had lost all parts of his body. So they rushed him straight into the theatre and they don't know what they had to, to do, but they couldn't monitor anything because he had lost all the parts of his feet and his arms not there. So they removed what they had to remove and, you know, he was in there for six and a half hours and they told us, you know, everything went well, that the biopsy had shown that it was. Initial results had shown that the biopsy was benign, and that they were happy with the way things went. So that was grand. Keen was central in intensive care, and looking back on it now, you know, it's at times, you know, you just think it's, it's like a, a dream you're living. Turns out, there was no road traffic accident. What actually happened was they looked a keen scan and they weren't going to do the operation because they just said this child has no chance. They'd done the operation, Keen was now quadriplegic. Uh, they took us in three days after the operation and said, look, there's no way telling us here, no point in beating her in the bush. He's two weeks to live. So we were just, what is going on here? You know, it's just very hard to comprehend and take it in. At the time, you just, it's like a dream. Even now, at times I would look back and say, did we actually go through that? It affected everybody's life in the family. The whole family was just upside down. But, you know, it was what it was, and we tried dealing with it as best. We caught it the time, and... You know, Keane was given two weeks to live, and then, you know, that he should have been dead by the mid-December. It got to the end of December, it got to January, and you think, Jesus, maybe he's gonna beat us. It went to February, and, you know, he was taken out of the hospital then in March, send them home and you know everything was going grand at home. Not that everything was going grand but it was what it was and we were dealing with trying to make it as normal as we could for the the kids and 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 for Keane. As I say he was quadriplegic it was so so hard to watch that there. Such so an active child, you know where he he would lost his voice at one stage. He never spoke for a month because he'd no no voice. That was hard to deal with. He, he finally died on the SMA and it sort of snuck up on us too. We were watching for other things. And what actually happened, Keane took a bleed in the brain on the Friday morning. We were supposed to go to the hospice for respite. And uh, he took a torn that morning. So the ambulance and I was sent for and They took him to Craig Gavin to tests. And we thought it was just a flu and an infection but it turns out the tumour had spread to his brain done another MRI and showed that it spread to his brain and said look he could live for two months six months, could be dead in two days and that was the Saturday they released him on the Monday back back home and on the Tuesday morning he took another bleed in the brain and never recovered he died on Friday morning
0: 5 to 2 Charlotte, tell me about in that loss and in that time, what was happening for you? What was that all like? As a
1: father, your whole world just comes crashing in. You know, as a father, you, you sort of question yourself, you know, because it's just completely out of your control. You know, you see the other, you see, you know, our other kids, they were suffering. It felt like my life was spiraling out of control, you know. You think, you know, you're the, the head of the family and. You know, you have to stay strong for everybody else. But, you know, unfortunately for me, I, I didn't grieve for the first year because, you know, I was trying to keep things together. But then, and then he had a breakdown. It hit me about a year afterwards. And, you know, I was, you know, I reached out for help, lucky you enough, and I was pointing in the right direction. But a lot of the people that you reach out for help, you know, like the doctor put me in contact with somebody, and the first thing he said to me was, I, I've been going through your charts there and I can see you've lost a son at 12. He said, I haven't a clue how you're dealing with that there because if a son at 12 myself, I don't know how you're dealing with that. That was frightening, you know. Not that I took everybody's grief on board, but you, you, you think you have to. You know, you're trying to make everything as easy for, you know, for Rachel, for my wife and for kids. Shane was 17, difficult age to deal with. You know, they are saying to him, Sheehan, you know if you want to talk, because he's a young, young adult, and he's just pushing you away. Leave me alone, leave me alone. And You know, you just think the family's just going to implode at that stage.
0: It is such a long journey from diagnosis, through treatment, through losing him, and everything that all involved. We had talked before this recording, and, and you mentioned that the experience of loss and grieving had sort of become even before he died. Can you talk me through that journey?
1: In the early days of Keane's sickness, like I'd approached the hospital and it put me in contact with somebody in the hospital. I was dealing with somebody in, in the hospital, you know, trying to take it in, as opposed to the ver- severity of it, you know. Being told that Keane was going today, you're just saying, like, how did we get to this place in our lives? You know, And just, I couldn't get my head around it. You were going in to visit him in, in the hospital, you know, every day, and. You know, he was in good form, good crack. Yes, he was quadriplegic, but, you know, he still had a sense of humour. You know, he had his tough moments too where he just said, I just want to get up and play football, you know, just... He just wanted to be a normal little boy and dealing with that then, we never ever told Keane how sick he was because he was quadriplegic and he would nothing to gain from it. The consultant wanted us to tell him, but he couldn't even scream. He couldn't reach out to give us a hug, you know, if we had told him so. We never did, even during his treatment. They'd give him a bit of chemo and radiation. We used to push him in in the bed into the hospital, backwards so he couldn't read the signs. Some of the signs were saying, you know, different units, cancer, treat- cancer center. We just said he had a growth and, you know, dealing with that sort of stuff, you know, you wanted to be open and transparent with him, but he didn't need to know. He was too young, you know, not, not giving him any credit, but. He would nothing to gain from telling them and dealing with all that pressure, you know, and whether there was life, there was hope, you know, they were telling us if, you know, different things were happening. You were saying, no, he's, he's gonna beat this, he's gonna beat this, and, you know, you were fighting, fighting against everything, you know what I mean? You just, that whether there was life, there was hope, and that's what you were clinging on to. And then when, it, you know, when Keane's death did happen, see, so you just feel like you're after jumping out of a plane and there's, you're just falling and falling. Your whole appetite for life, it's not the same.
0: During the treatment, I imagine there's always things happening. You're in and out of the hospital, appointments, preparations. In the aftermath of his loss, it's different. Your routine is completely changed. Talk to me about that.
1: Keen spent a hundred days in intensive care. on, you know, me and Richard were like ships in the night. Uh, Richard would stay tonight, and then I'd go in at three o'clock spend a couple hours as a family, and then Richard would go home at about eight o'clock. And we'd done that for a hundred days. You know, when King came home, like, we were doing most of his care, because not that he didn't want the nurses, but he just, he was a lot more relaxed with us. So we trained, you know, CPR and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we were looking, there was nurses there and that there for 24 hour care, but we were doing most of it. And day that void, massive, why you know you're walking into the sitting room? you were saying like, two weeks ago he was lying in the bed there. Uh, you know, silly things. I wouldn't say they're silly, but that's how the brain processes grief. You know, the mind is a strange thing. You know, even now, like you, you I, I would go back. You know, you can go just trigger something to trigger you go back and you know you remember something that happened. You say, did I actually go through that? It takes a long time to accept them sort of things, you know. But as I say, in the early days, the void of not being there, you know, not
0: caring for him anymore. It was, you know, it was a big, big void. And as time went on, how does that experience of grief change? You've mentioned that void in the immediate aftermath, the shock, the not dealing with it in the first year. As time progressed, what was that experience of grief like?
1: suppose in the early days, hey, you know, I was so angry. I just wanted to lash out, you know. And, you know, what, what I'd been through as a father, I, I wouldn't wish on anybody, you know. But it, in the early days, it's just, I suppose it was my way of dealing with it. I found that I didn't know what I was actually feeling, whether it was guilt, anger. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't put a label on it. I know now what I was going through was normal. But at the time, you know, it, it's very scary, you know, it, You just feel like you're out of control. You know, I went to so many people, reached out for help to so many people. Didn't get anything out of the first few people I went to. Tried all the organizations. It's lurking in the background, you know. In the early days, like waking up even in the morning from when you would go to bed at night. Rachel never went to bed, I suppose, two, half two, three o'clock in the morning until she was wrecked tired. The only thing she could do was sleep. I dealt with it, I suppose we did a bit different. We give each other the room to deal with her in, in her own own way. As I say, I, I reached out for help. But in the early days, nothing s- seemed to work. And as I say, I nearly had a breakdown then. You know, you're going through so many things. I had a severe problem with anger. Just wanted to lash out just at anybody. It was nothing personal against anybody. It was just my way of dealing with at the time. Four or five years, I was dealing with different people but I just couldn't get anything. You know, there's so much goes on from the period of Keane's death through them years, you know. People that you think should be there for you, weren't there for you. Yes, you compensate, you meet people from different walks of life, to bring you places that, you know, you never thought you'd go, but, you know, I fell out with members of my family because they just have no iota of what you're going through, the loss of a child. You know, they're asking you stupid things, you know. Come on to Belfast, we go and look at a new car. I, I want to buy a new hybrid car. Get a grip. No interest, you know. It took me a long time, to, you know, to get the the grips with it, you know, and to lose that anger. I say, I went, I went to anger man, management. I try and I didn't like the person I was becoming, but I just couldn't help it because I didn't understand, what it, you know, the process of, of grief. It was probably six, seven years before,
0: you know, I got the, on the on the right track. Getting to that point, reaching out for support in different ways. What was it that made you feel I need to reach out? I need to find supports. What supports did you find that were useful to you? I knew within myself, like, I suppose I changed as a
1: person myself, and I didn't like the person that was becoming. As I say, I was so full of anger. I'd be very direct and straight with people, but, you know, I I had so much anger. I'd rather do somebody a turn than do them any harm. It was always in in my nature, but. It sort of lost me, sense for life. You know, me and Richard have often sat and talked about that there, you know, like life wasn't the same and, you know, it was it was just time itself that really helped me. And I think by talking to other parents, that's what really, really helped me. I remember going to Barrettstown, three and a half or four months after Keane died and uh, meeting different families. And we were, we were talking and somebody cracked a joke about something and I remember laughing. And I remember, it'll always stick in my mind, that was the first time that I had a good, hearty laugh without feeling guilt. You know, and I remember saying to the people that I was with that day, you know, I shouldn't be laughing. And they said, you should. It was little things over a period of time that got me back on,
0: on track, you know. Uh, Tell me more. What was it that was of value in, in helping you to cope? Helping me to, to cope... Uh, I
1: say, talking to other parents, you know, give you an insight of what you're going through is normal because it felt anything but normal. You know, I just, as I said lost week, recessed for life. I wasn't working, I didn't want to work, you know, I was waking up in the morning saying I have to go to work and I just couldn't get out of bed. You know, depression had set in, you know, maybe it wasn't depression, maybe it was just grief. I don't know talking to other people, you know, you, that bit of normality came back to her saying, no, that's, that's normal, feeling all these things. And it, it wasn't so much what, what help I got off doctors or psychologists or anything like that there. It was just talking to other people that slowly, I was able to put one foot in front of you Because, you know, my life had changed, you know, before Keen uh, took sick, you know, business was going well, everything yeah, I mean, was going well in my life. Plenty of property about me, you know. I wouldn't say it money, but it, I was living a good life. And then, you know, in between all that, there, you know, I went bankrupt after Keen died. I was lucky; I kept my own house, sort of thing. But none of that mattered. It didn't. It was, it didn't matter to me in the slightest. It just didn't matter. And as I say, only for talking to other people, fundraising helped me a lot. We've done a lot of fundraising in Keen's memory, and. You, you know, you were throwing yourself into these events that you were doing. You know, I have to say that people supported them. And that was, that was a big thing because it was keeping Keen's
0: legacy alive. That meant a lot. Having had support and doing those activities, talking to other parents, the things that you did for yourself to move through this journey. Tell me about where you're getting to now.
1: 12 years on, now I got involved with Kara four or five months after Keane died. Help set them up in the north. Uh, it's rewarding if you can go and sit and talk to people, and just for that hour, to feel that wee bit of normality. You can see it in their eyes. You know, you can you can see that they're totally relaxed. No, you're not taking their pain away. You're not trying to take their pain away. All you're trying to do is just steer them on a path to help themselves. And it, it, it's rewarding when you, you know, when you can reach out and help somebody because you can go back there very easily. You were meeting so many people that were in your position. You know, you wanted to you know, hug them and wrap them up and take their pain away, but you couldn't. All you could do was just point them and offer them a bit of hope. That was the only thing that you could do. and You know, that in itself is rewarding.
0: Reflecting back on the experience, particularly that journey through treatment, thinking back on those years, what do you feel now?
1: 20 years ago, if somebody had said to me, you know, you'd, you'd be going through that there, you'd have said, no. As I say, my life, everything was going well, financially everything was going well, you know, plenty of property about me, you know, looked like I was going to have a great patch and you know, all that sort of stuff, stuff that doesn't matter. Then, you know, the turmoil comes of losing a child. Uh, it just brings you to a place, and, you know, brings you to a place you think you're never going to be. Going to
0: and I've heard parents talk about that continuing bond that they have with their children. Tell me about that connection you have with Keen and his memory. I would
1: talk to Keen C- every day, you know, just tell him what's happening in my life and you know where we are now. The pain of of not having him here, you know, all them milestones like Keen to be twenty-three years of age, now. the what ifs and the buts, you know, you'll, you'll always have them. Them thoughts of it. Where, where would he be now? What would he be doing? But that void is always there. Twelve years bereaved, and you know I still carry that with me every day. There's not an hour of the day I don't think about him. You know, I actually enjoy you walking on my own a lot of the time because it just gives me the freedom to to think.
0: And tell me, Jarlath, what message would you like to send to parents listening, particularly those who have had the experience of a loss like yours?
1: Just like to offer them a bit of hope. Uh, in the early days, you think things are so black and so deep. You're in, you know, you're in a place that, as I said earlier, it's just so frightening. But time, time, you know, and it's it's it, it'll be different for everybody. But I'd like to offer them a wee bit of hope. Your your life will never be the same. But twelve years on, I was actually just thinking maybe four or five months ago, but you know. I'm actually enjoying my life again. You know, I'm not going to enjoy it to the extent that it was before we lost Ken. You know, it never be back to that high. You know, as I say, things are going well, but I can say what I it, now. I'm enjoying my life. I carry Ken with me every day. It's all one step at a time. For you know, in the early days, don't think too far ahead. Look after yourself. I think is number one. You know, do what's right for you. If you don't want to do something, just be honest and say, "Look, listen." I just don't want to do that today. Time. Time. Yeah, and, you know, your life is never going to be, be the same, but it'll do the full circle, come back, and you will enjoy your life again. doesn't mean that you're forgetting about your children or brave children. You're not. You're just...
0: You're on a different path. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Jarlett. And we dedicate this episode to the memory of Keen. We know the power of hearing the stories of other parents, and how this can help in navigating the journey of grief. Anam provides information, resources, and bereavement support after the death of a child of any age and through all circumstances. They hold regular group meetings and information sessions in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. You can find out more by visiting www.anamcara.ie, or you can call plus three five three one. 404-5378 or from outside Dublin 85 and of calling from Northern Ireland 028-952-13120 We would like to thank all the parents who have spoken to us and shared their stories for this podcast series. Thank you for listening and be kind to yourself.